The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good morning, and thank you for joining host Cheryl Esposito for an intriguing hour of Leading Conversations. Each week, Cheryl brings together big thinkers to the Voice America Business Channel. Now here's your host, Cheryl Esposito. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito. Today, our special guest is John Milton. John is a very special being on this planet and very close to my heart. He is a spiritual teacher. He is a man of the world, a pioneering ecologist. He's an author, a meditation master. We could go on and on. Tai Chi master, Qigong master. He's also counsel to leaders around the world. John, welcome to Leading Conversations today. Wonderful to be here, Cheryl. It's great to have you here. So where are you today? I'm sitting in a beautiful location overlooking the San Luis Valley in southern Colorado in a little town called Crestone. Ah. I know Crestone. It's a beautiful place at the base of the mountains, and it's a very special place. You know, tell us a little bit, because I know there are people who don't know of Crestone. Tell us a little bit about that town. Well, it was originally established in the late 1800s as a, as a mining town. They found gold and silver here, for example. And uh, then the, the mining kind of phased out. And before that time, it had been a major gathering place for many Native American nations who used to come here to do vision quest and ceremony. They come from all quarters of the continent for that reason, so it became quite well known in the American world. And it was considered a area people could come to and be in peace, even if they were having troubles with each other, they would come here and under uh, uh, understanding this was a peaceful a place where all the, the conflicts were laid to rest and they could come together and connect to the earth and nature and each other in a peaceful way for spiritual practice and going deeper into the connections with Mother Earth. So in many ways, um, the town is being rebirthed from its mining period into huh. a rediscovery of the same thing. Uh, I've been working very closely with a woman named Hannah Strong and a group called the Manitou Foundation to bring in many spiritual groups from around the world to establish centers here over the years. So in well, a way, we've... Uh, We've kind of recreated the old Native American tradition. That's beautiful, you know, and to take land that has um, been mined and to mine it spiritually, so to speak, for the the good and the blessings it can give, that's pretty powerful. So I know that you spend a lot of time there. And you also spend time um, in other places around the world. You travel extensively um, throughout Europe and some parts of, of Asia. And you are known for um, helping people to 
connect to the earth, connect to themselves, to really understand that, um, you know, we are the earth, we are spirit, there's no separation for us. Talk a little bit about, um, you know, why this matters so much today. Well, the fundamental issue that faces most of us these days is how to live lives of deeper integrity, integrity in the connection with the essence of ourselves and integrity with the essence of nature. And in many ways, the the integrity around coming into a balanced relationship to nature is one of the key uh, challenges of modern culture, and that's really a worldwide challenge. The... uh, I think one of the things that's exciting about the experiment that we've been conducting here in Crestone is that it's a it's we have brought together uh, communities from all over the world, basically from Buddhist, Hindu, Taoist, uh, various shamanic cultures, uh, and and other traditions, Christian uh, as well, and. We've established a series of communities here and learned how to live together in a peaceful way with each other and to see into what we have in common instead of what we, how we, how we differ and who, and who is better. So we were experimenting in an interface uh, approach to living together peacefully and discovering what unique things our particular path may have and might be of interest to others and also what we have in common at a very deep level. That's a very exciting experiment, I think. The other thing that's quite unique is that each community that's come here, at least if it's been part of the invitation from Manitou, has been asked to demonstrate how it can live in harmony and balance with nature when it comes into creating community here. So part of my job has been to help provide some of the ecological principles and guidelines for the construction of new communities as they arrive, and uh, to give them an introduction to some of the amazing uh, old sacred sites of this area. We have some extraordinary uh, sacred lands here, which we're, our way of nature community is protecting as kind of a model for both of the other communities that come in, but also for other parts of, of North America that hopefully will follow the same example. So this, these two uh, threads, the coming into harmony and balance with nature and and discovering a deeper kind of natural integrity of a deeper connection to our source uh, are two of the key, uh, and, and how we have all the pathways have certain fundamental principles in common on the pathway to that source. These are the two threads <clears throat> that I think are certainly uh, what make our, our work here in Crestone kind of unique and what, in a way, is one of the great challenges that we have on the planet right now, how to live peacefully in an intercultural way, how to learn and benefit and grow from the diversity of cultures and human lifestyles, while at the same time also learning how to come back into balance with nature, much as most traditional peoples have done that live closer to their natural ecosystems in a balanced way. So we're having to rediscover how to do that now. So, John, the the concept of being in balance with nature is, um, I, I mean, there must be as many interpretations of that as there are people on the planet. What is your perspective on, you know, what's our role in, in living in balance 
with nature? What's our role in living in harmony? What does that look like? <clears throat> well, for one thing, it means we need to begin to decentralize our our processes just as nature decentralizes itself into local ecosystems from the larger biosphere itself. We need to learn how to become much more aware of the uniqueness of each ecosystem we inhabit where mm-hmm. we may live on the planet. And so part of the beginning of, of uh, how to come into that balance is to gain a much deeper understanding of the natural ecoregions. I've been calling these ecoregions lately, areas where we live closely and intimately with nature, and learning what are the rules and principles of nature where we come to live, and how can we begin to evolve technologies, uh, planning, design, and processes that, that in a sense, mimic the uh, ecological behavior of the natural ecosystems we inhabit. I've been calling that process lately, I had to coin a new term based on the, the idea of biomimicry, so I came up with the term ecomimicry as a way to uh-huh. to uh, describe the, the way in which we need to to really mimic not just the behavior of, of a, a biological organism, but the behavior of an entire ecosystem and the kind of balance. So we need to live a more ecomimical way and a more ecoregional balanced way. And to do that, of course, uh, <clears throat> one of the most important things is to be able to come into relationship with with these ecoregions themselves. If we don't have a relationship, how can we possibly receive the wisdom, the creativity, and the understanding to come into that deeper relationship? It's not just an intellectual process. It's something that comes from very deep and direct connection to these places. And, of course, that's something we specialize in in the way of nature and providing that experience. And, you know, I've had that experience of being able to connect with nature, connect with the earth, specifically in Crestone, um, in Baja, uh, Todos Santos, uh, in some of the areas that you have, um, the sacred sites, and in the Chiricahua Mountains, um, which is just beautiful, uh, in Moab, you know, we... You conduct these um, retreats and vision quests um, in all of those places and, and around the world. And, and I have had the experience in these places to really do what you call dropping in, you know, just kind of letting go of all of the daily stressors and all of the distractions and really dropping into um, the essence of what is. And um, that may sound like a foreign language to some people, but my experience has been that when I'm out there, um, it really does feel like um, a shedding. It does feel like things are literally falling off my body and my mind is getting quiet and you know, I really do have a heightened sense of awareness of what's around me, the trees, the birds, the earth, um, the occasional bear, you know, things like that. And, uh, <laughs> and, and of course, all of the fears that all that brings up. But I, I have um, the experience of being there and being that quiet, 
so that I can hear a leaf crackle is really helps me to understand how sacred nature is and how sacred this planet is. And sometimes that's really, well, a lot of the times that's easy to forget. You know, we get out in our cars, we're driving from one city to the next, we're trying to take care of business, and we forget that even driving down the road, it's a sacred experience. And, you know, one of the things that you have said for years is, you know, how do you make every day sacred? And, you know, that's an interesting practice. So what do, you, what do you tell people about how to do that? Well, one of the things is mastering uh, one of my favorite principles of spiritual cultivation, which is the mastery of relaxation and presence coming together. If you become an expert in relaxation, and to me, relaxation is the most important principle for modern times. Presence is a very key and vital one, too. But in Western culture, because of our busyness, uh, we we find it very, very hard to to relax. And without relaxation, you cannot have true presence. So the real challenge of modern times is relaxation, which comes prior to deep presence. So I would say the cultivation of presence in whatever you're doing, combined with deep relaxation, is is an essential key to open the door to the sacred in everyday life, and it's slow. Mm. Wow. So mastering relaxation, well, most people would say, well, that would be great, you know, right? Does that, I mean, is that hard? Is that hard to do? Well, I, I think it's it's probably the greatest challenge of our time for most people. Um, Of course, we can use various external aids, things like massage, therapy, and uh, going to a nice hot spring, taking a sauna or a sweat lodge. All these are wonderful ways to open the door to a deeper level of relaxation. But I think if we just spend a little time actually physically lying down or standing or moving in a deeply relaxed way as a practice, each day. We can take whatever we're doing and see how we can do whatever it is that we're doing in a deeply relaxed way. Pay attention to every muscle, every tissue in the body that's that's exhibiting tension and consciously begin to relax as we go better for whatever our daily behavior is. That's a way to begin cultivating relaxation in a very practical, simple way. And also spending a little time each morning and evening lying down and consciously relaxing every fiber of the body progressively from head to toe and back up again. That's an extremely helpful way to begin to cultivate the skill of relaxation and the principle of relaxation. Well, I know that um, most of us need a lot of practice at relaxing, which seems like an oxymoron. But, you know, it's one more thing to do while we're not doing. That's kind of a, a human foible, I think. So... You know, before we go to break, John, um, I'm curious about what it is that you want to accomplish in the next few years. You know, if you were to look at what was going on in the world and say, what's your most important work in the next few years, give us a headline for what that is. I'd say the most important thing is helping the spread of the process which we've been 
we've been refining now for several decades, which uh, is contained within these 12 principles of natural liberation, which are at the core of the kind of training we do within the way of nature, which gives people the direct experience of being connected to nature and gives them a direct pathway to discovering source within. Mm-hmm. And so I'd say the main uh, challenge for me is, is taking this amazing experience of two or three decades of very deep work with many, many people and uh, and helping nurture the growth and spread of that process uh, globally into many little seed points that would like to begin to grow the same kind of process in their own ecological region. Well... You have a very big um, trip coming up, and we're going to talk about that when we welcome back John Milton. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. Welcome back to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito with our very special guest today, John Milton. So, John, as a spiritual teacher, you often um, lead pilgrimages around the world. Tell us how you define a pilgrimage. How is that different from just a trip? I always enjoyed watching John Wayne movies, and I remember he would often introduce the term Welcome, Pilgrim, and things like that. <laughs> I remember wondering at the word Pilgrim at that time, because in my my experience, I didn't really know what that was. Even though my family has some Native American background, we uh, we weren't really introduced to the concept of pilgrimage. But later on, I began to realize that I, I was developing a passion to go to many sacred sites around the, the planet and beautiful wild places, and I, I knew that I was going to these places, not as an explorer or one to climb the highest mountain and conquer it or anything of that kind, but more as a journey to into the sacred. Mm. And of course, that was a journey as much into myself as it was into the outer environment. But that took me a few years to really, really fully realize. Mm. And over time, 
I began to offer that kind of experience to friends and students that had been working with me because I found that uh, there's a certain kind of power that comes from going to a sacred place. I like to say that there are five core powers that are part of any spiritual cultivation process. One is the power of, of the liberated essence within all of us. Another is the power of liberating teachings. Another is the power of a of a solitude and alone time in silence in nature. And another is the power of a sacred place, the capacity of a sacred place to transmit a special quality that helps us to open to an ex direct experience of the sacred. And the last power is the power of transmission, which can happen from that experience of connection to a sacred place or to a authentic teacher that has the direct experience of, of source itself can give help pass along a direct taste of that to those that are working with that are working with them. I love how you so these, said So these these five powers are very important in pilgrimage, but the, especially the power of a sacred place coming into combination with the the sacred essence within each one of us is, and the transmission that occurs when those two things come together. I think that's the essence of the magic of pilgrimage. And so, if I understand this right, then being in that sacred place, honoring and revering what that place is about, and then allowing um, ourselves to experience that sacred, then touches our own essence then allows us exactly. to know the sacred within us. Exactly. And that begins to open the door to the, the direct experience of the sacred in more conventional situations later because you've, begin to, you've begun to uncover pure source awareness within, and then you begin to really cultivate the continuing recognition of that pure awareness aspect of source within in every context or every situation that you're in. And that, of course, is a lifetime practice. But mm -hmm. <clears throat> deep immersion in sacred places really accelerate and amplify the cultivation process of that. So, John, what makes a place sacred? Well, I've been asking Mother Earth that question for many years. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> it's, uh, it's something that you, you know when you experience it, something that you feel. It's not really an intellectual process. It's mm. it's something that's directly experienced, and I, I think that it's kind of a, in a way it's a mystery. Mm. I don't think that we can. I don't think that we'll ever have a, a rational exploration of what makes a sacred place sacred. I have, I'm lucky enough to live in one here at Crestone. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> well, in fact, I spent quite a few years uncovering a number of sacred sites in this area, and I've devoted quite a bit of my life savings to protecting a particular area of sacred sites where people go through very strong transformational experiences. These are archaeological sites that have been there for thousands of years, and uh, the, uh, there we can, we can pretty well authenticate archaeologically some of the, uh, the remains of ancient cultures and, that have been here and constructed these places, which were used for spiritual practice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But... Um, but not all sacred places are like that. Some are just, you enter that area and you immediately begin to feel there's something different, something is shifting inside of yourself. There's a deeper 
feeling of being connected both to nature and to the core of yourself that is is powerful and deep. And uh, I'd say that those are two of the qualities that most sacred places have in common, the ones in nature anyway. And also a, a great opening of the heart very often. Absolutely. Yeah. So you have a pilgrimage coming up, and it is a pilgrimage to a land that is filled with controversy and filled with love, and that is Tibet. Talk about why you are drawn to Tibet. Tell us about your experience in the past and and why now. Well, a little hard to summarize my experience with Tibet and Tibetan culture and teachings, but uh, to put it very briefly, I've been quite deeply immersed in both Tibetan classical Buddhist uh, training and also been studying in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition as well uh, quite deeply. <clears throat> I feel both are very Buddhist, as the indigenous tradition of, of Tibet, and it honors a very ancient lineage of, of Buddhas that go way, way back. At the same time, uh, I've got a strong background in Yingma and Galikpa and Kagyu Buddhism, which are other branches of Buddhism that are, are pretty well known in the West these days. Uh, Tibetan Buddhism has much to offer contemporary culture because it provides, through, especially through Mahamudra and Dzogchen, a very direct path to the experience of pure awareness within. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, and that direct path to the awareness of our fundamental state of, of the base is something that many people are yearning for more and more these days. And I'd say that uh, especially uh, Mahamudra and Tibetan Buddhism in the form of Dzogchen provide a very direct path to that, very similar to the directness of Nandula Advaita Vedanta, the, the pathway of Ramana Maharshi, or the great Bundle paths that come out of Taoism or some of the great shamanic paths like the Bunpo path provide these same direct openings to, to source. And um, so I think that background in <clears throat> Tibetan Buddhism has been immensely helpful to me. I found it a, some of my best teachers have come out of that tradition. I've personally found it to be of great benefit. And it helped me distill and essentialize many of the core principles I found common to many of the other lineages that I had studied in. But the Tibetans had been able to to uh, coalesce and clarify these core principles in a very clear way, I found. Mount uh, Kailash, which is where we're going to for this pilgrimage, is considered by many to be one of the most sacred, some would argue the most sacred site on the planet. Huh. It's... Uh, Kailash represents the, the core of the universe here on Earth, or the cosmos here on this planet. And uh, it's the headwaters, interestingly, of the Indus River, uh, the Karnali River, the um, uh, <clears throat> many of the great rivers that then flow out through eastern Tibet and down into Burma. It's a, uh, it's a dome-shaped mountain. It rises up... Uh, uh, it's not as high as some of the great peaks like Everest, but which are at 29,000 feet. But this is, I think, just slightly over 23,000, as I recall. Um, but it's a, it's a spectacularly beautiful mountain, and it's been traditional for the Hindus, for the Bund, 
tradition and culture, and for the Tibetan Buddhists to go to this mountain, and, to, and also to the Jains, and to circumambulate it in either a clockwise or counterclockwise direction, to walk around the mountain in a sick way with a, a consciousness of the interconnectedness of inner and outer nature as you go about that, that walk. So it's basically a, about as pure and uh, clear a process of pilgrimage as any I know, and it brings together the deepest pilgrimage practices of Hindu, Buddhist, Jain, and probably and Bun, and probably other traditions all in one place that have honored this one site, and they peacefully practice their connection to the sacred together in that way. Hmm. You know, this concept of um, circumambulating or walking in a circle around the mountain, Mount Kailash, um, is a tradition for the people there in Tibet. And um, what was it you told me? Did you say that the belief is if um, they do it 108 times that they have cleansed all of the negative karma for all lifetimes? Yes, there are a number of... uh... There are a number of sayings like that. I don't personally know whether that is true or not. I think to to walk 108 times around college would be quite an endeavor. <laughs> yeah. so, we right. start out at around 14,000 feet, and we go up to, I believe it's about 18 or 18 and a half thousand feet at the highest extreme of the of what's called the Kora, or the circumambulation of the sacred peak of college. One of the things that's unique, I think, about our pilgrimage is that combining the the main practice of going into solitude in a wild place, which we do in the way of nature. We've kind of mm-hmm. taken the process of mountain retreat or vision quest and tried to bring it into modern times in a way that is easily easy to assimilate by modern people. Mm-hmm. So we can use a tent, we can uh, sleep, we can have a sleeping bag, we can be relatively comfortable we're in deep solitude for a period of time that can be anywhere from a few days to a week to several months or longer in in a wild place in nature. And of course that really deepens the experience of both source and connection to nature in a, in a very profound way. Mm-hmm. What we're going to be uh, doing in this pilgrimage at Kailash is um, taking time out for solitude, solitary retreat time uh, to most of the directions, to the east, to the east, west, north, and to some degree to the south. And the main solitary retreat periods will be to the to the west, to the north, and to the east of Kailash as we circumambulate. And that makes this uh, pilgrimage quite unique because most uh, most people who go there to do pilgrimage go and they walk around the mountain, but they do not go into solitude for deep reflection and a deep connection to the essence of themselves and, and the sacredness that the sacred site has to offer. So I think we have a really unique and remarkable opportunity with this particular pilgrimage to college that we've designed for this year. I'm really looking forward to it. Oh, it's, it's going to be a fantastic opportunity. Now, you know, during the time that you will be there with the group, um, I imagine that not only will there be 
time for reflection and spending solitude, um, very much cared for, by the way, and that's important for people to know, that um, though there will be times of solitude, um, there will it will be in relative comfort with tents and sleeping bags and um, food every day, etc. And but I imagine that you're going to be doing some teaching and that on a on a pilgrimage like this, the teaching is likely not to be the classic um, sit in the classroom with the teacher talking kind of teaching. Talk about how you engage in teaching while you're doing something like this. Well, in the context of pilgrimage, uh, the teaching is very much like some of what occurs in, in our advanced training process, which is traditionally so far tended to be a, a multi-year process, often up to seven years of training. Um, <clears throat> but much of the growth and transformational work is done in the flow of traveling together and applying the appropriate practices and insights to the situations that arise in the moment as we undergo the pilgrimage process itself. So there really is no separation between pilgrimage and, uh, you might say, the teachings. The teachings arise from the, the natural circumstances that, that arise naturally from the pilgrimage process. Mm-hmm. And in the case of the way of nature, of course, we work, we honor all the great lineages, and I've been lucky enough to study with some wonderful teachers and masters from these great traditions. But we're going to be teaching or, or going through the transformational process largely from the perspective of, the, of these 12 core principles, which over the years I've found are common to most of the world's great enlightening traditions. So we're using the 12 principles as the core of, of our uh, uh, spiritual cultivation process as we do the core and uh, letting life itself define the circumstances that provide us hopefully with some insight to bring insight into ourselves and to our true natures. Well, I know that those 12 principles have certainly informed my life, and it is, you know, relatively simple concepts. I wouldn't say they are easy to apply on a daily basis, um, but, of course, simple to understand intellectually, and the challenge is always integrating it into who one is on a daily basis. And I'm really, um, as, as a person who's going to be in Tibet with you, I'm really looking forward to how these principles show up and how we work them into um, you know, kind of who we are. So, Absolutely. John, uh, yeah, yeah um, so we're going to go to break. And when we, come, yeah, when we come back, then I'm going to let you finish that thought. We'll be right back. I just wanted to share that uh, one of my favorite memories of Cheryl is sitting in a restaurant and uh, having uh, her, her phone suddenly light up and flash a word. And the word was relax. <laughs> and said, what's going on, Cheryl? She said, this is how I take the 12 principles and I, I bring them in, alive into daily life in the flow of what's going on. So you you know most better than most, Cheryl, how to do it. 
I work at it. I work at it every day, John. (laughs) I'm a student for life. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. Well, welcome back. This is Cheryl Esposito, and we're speaking with John Milton today. John, we were talking about Tibet and the pilgrimage that you are leading there in August. And, you know, Tibet is, um, you know, going back to the idea, it's a pretty controversial place. Um, Talk a little bit about, um, you know, how, how that is going to affect the trip itself? Well, of course, we're, we're not sure about that, but one of the things that I'm sure will be uh, very present for us is the uh, degree to which the sacredness of the pilgrimage process at college has been preserved mm-hmm. in modern times. I myself, I have no idea how that's going, going to be for us, but I hear that it's still relatively integrated pilgrimage process when you do this core around Kailash and that the integrity of it is still pretty clear and and, uh, and uh, profoundly transformative. But some of it, we're also going to be going to the north face of Mount Everest as part of the preparation for going to Kailash. One of the reasons is that very few people get to go to the north face of Everest. A number of people have gone to the south face in Nepal. But to be able to get up over 18,000 feet onto the glaciers on the north face is an extraordinary experience. I did it about 10 years ago, and it absolutely is breathtaking. And uh, we'll be going there first in part to help acclimatize for the journey later on in Kailash. We'll also be going to Samye, which is one of the greatest monasteries of Tibet, founded by Guru Rinpoche or Padmasambhava. And uh, the great caves that were uh, inhabited by Padmasambhava and his uh, companion Yeshitogil, and also the the great sage, uh, great sages of, of Sokchen especially. Uh, there are many of the great caves that were there 
their main practice sites above Samye, and we'll be spending some time up in those caves meditating and doing spiritual practice. I think that's going to be an extraordinary experience. Uh, Long Champa has one of his main meditation caves up there, for those of you who know much about Dzogchen historically, and that's something I'm especially looking forward to myself. Well, it promises to be an extraordinary experience. Um, you know, one of the elements of the teachings that I've appreciated from you over the years, there are many, but, but one of the elements of the teachings that uh, comes to mind is how you help people work with the senses. Talk about that. Yeah, I think... Uh... In many ways, nature closest to us is our human body, is this bodily form. And to honor this bodily form and our experience of inhabiting this body or being one with this body is a way of really opening the door to deep honoring of, of outer nature. <clears throat> so in, in the way of nature, we, I've developed a process of working with the senses so that with each perceptual field, we go through an experience of the first experience, the disconnect that most of us have with nature for much of the time. We see ourselves as totally separate from what we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, and so on. So we start with that experience with each one of the perceptions or senses with the experience of being uh, um, normally separated, disconnected. Mm. And we provide some uh, very simple techniques and approaches to shift that into an experience of connection, which is the first step in the way of nature practice cycle. Once you've gone deep into the process of connection through sight, sound, taste, smell, and touch, uh, then you can begin to have the experience of an even deeper level of connection, which I call the experience of communion, which in Latin means union with. So there's still you, there's still that which you're connecting to, like a tree or a beautiful flower. But there's the underlying experience at the same time of a fundamental unity that's going on at the same time. And you have the stillness, the silence, and the space to allow that experience of both unity and yet there's still you and there's still the, the being of nature. Then if you go deeper yet... <clears throat> The experience of stage of union can be experienced where there really is no separation between you and the tree that you're touching or the flower that you're smelling or the beauty of the sunset that you're, you're one with. Okay. At that point, there's simply the experience of the, the tree you or the you tree. Uh, it's, a, it's just a fundamental unity that's happening. And the, uh, the sense field is, is, might say, is the bridge of, of the union. You can go deeper yet into the experience of sensing and follow the perception directly back into the place of origination internally. When you follow that pathway of cultivation, then, of course, each of the sense fields becomes a pathway to the direct unfolding or, or revealing or recognition of source itself, of pure source awareness itself. So the base awareness or the natural state of pure awareness is revealed by following the senses back into where the senses arise internally. At that point, the sensing practices become liberating practices. 
And uh, so that process of starting first recognizing or honoring the fact we're disconnected, then going into the experience of connection, then going deeper yet into the experience of communion, then going deeper yet into the experience of union, and then turning all the sense fields back into the place of origination internally, and then actually recognizing that both the outer nature and the inner nature are both arising from source source awareness. Then at that point, of course, the whole practice becomes immensely liberating and enlightening. Um, and revealing of source. So that's one of the practice approaches that's rather unique to the way of nature. I, I, uh, this is something that came out of many, many years of doing solo retreat in nature over many, many years with both Taoist background and Buddhist background and Bunpoke background and many other great traditions that I've been lucky enough to be able to study deeply in. And then all of them have a similar approach to, in a sense, the uncovering of, of pure source awareness as the base. Um, but honoring the senses and not blocking them off is is absolutely critical because when you when you really deeply honor sight, sound, taste, smell, and touch, then you begin to establish a profound sense of being part of nature. You begin to join the family of all life, so it also becomes an ecologically revolutionary practice on the path to liberation. And that's one of the reasons I feel that our the approach we've taken in the way of nature community is 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 a practice for our time is because it's so profoundly ecological in its scope. <clears throat> Once we've mastered sight, sound, taste, smell, and touch, then we go on to work with balance and movement. Um, the experience of the life force and energy, and then even with the flow of the emotions and the shifting uh, flow of thought, as especially thoughts in the context of what's being experienced by the other sense fields. So when you put all those together, you have sight, sight, taste, smell, touch, balance, and movement, emotion and thought added in. In other words, balance and movement, the flow of energy, the emotions, and thoughts are added into the normal sense fields of sight, sense, smell, and touch. So you end up with nine fields of experience, Mm. which are uh, experiential fields that can be utilized for going through that process of connection, communion, union, and source unveiling. And and lest our listeners think that... um, they are their head is spinning right now, trying to to follow all of this and think, "Oh my gosh, how could I even learn this, and how could I even apply this?" Um, you know, there are people that you have worked with over the years who have you have um, counseled and you have taught who are very well known in our community, um, people like Peter Senge, people like Otto Scharmer, people like um, Joe Jaworski, who have all authored books. They've all gone on to um, take what they have learned, taken their experiences in their deep connections to the sacred, deep connections to nature in their work with you, and you will find them talking about it in books or when you hear them giving speeches or talks. And, um, and I, you know, I 
know these people and they are, um, you know, very busy, they're traveling the world, they're in demand, and they have very stressful lives. And um, they talk about how this experience with you has completely informed how they show up in the world. And, you know, Peter Senge and Otto Scharmer and Joe Jaworski and Betty Sue Flowers wrote the book Presence, and that's been out for several years. And Joe Jaworski just published um, the book Source and talked extensively about his experience um, with you and the way of nature. Um, You know, this is, I I believe, quite a testament to your life's work and how um, you have influenced people who then want to turn around and share their learning and um, offer it up into the world again. You know, it's like this ripple effect, right? And, you know, it's, it's pretty interesting to me that at each level... You know, little bits of what, for instance, little bits of what we're hearing here have shown up in books like that. Well, thank you for sharing that. I also, also thank some of uh, Brian Arthur, who is a, quite a well-known leading world economist. And uh, yeah. I think Brian still holds probably the world's record in the number of sacred passages he's <laughs> <laughs> I think you're right. You recently, you recently came over again to, to and did the keynote at the Talberg Forum in Sweden uh-huh. and did a beautiful job at the conclusion of again uh-huh. pointing out how the creativity of a lot of his work uh, has been nurtured and fostered by these deep connections to source and to nature. And, of course, I think that's one of the key key things that really needs to be emphasized is that when you go, when you follow a path to... Um, self-recognition to to uncovering the, the true self that uh, you do find in many, many different pathways. But if you follow a pathway that deeply honors nature as part of the process, and of course through these sensing processes, you deeply honor nature close to your, your own body, its senses, and the way those senses connect with the experience of being part of nature. What happens is you... You, you become bonded and powerfully unified with, with the uh, ecology of the place where you are. And, of course, out of that kind of deep connection with having a deep immersion in source, you begin to tap into a level of creativity that's uniquely mm-hmm. ecologically uh, coherent to whatever the unique gifts that you have to offer to uh, the enrollment of a new kind of culture that needs to come into balance with yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah, that's well, how it's and, going to happen through deep connection. Right. And, you know, Brian Arthur is a, an incredibly deep thinker and is thinking about things that haven't even been invented yet. I mean, that's, that's kind of the way I categorize Brian. He's just he's a pretty amazing brain. And, and he speaks about how... Um, his time out in nature just allows his um, allows all of the information that you know the physicists say we have access to. Right, it's all out there. It's quantum field. Um, that being out in nature is what allows that to come into him, and allows a lot of these theories to um, formulate. 
And so we're lucky enough to to benefit that, you know. Brian writes his books, and he influenced the development of companies like Google, and, you know, he hangs out in Silicon Valley a lot. And yep. He's and a think, writer. Uh, Peter, Peter Sinke is, is another excellent example, and Joe Jaworski of these same, um, because they've gone so deep meditatively into connection to source via yeah. a pathway that's in nature or immersed in nature as a meditative uh, context. Right. Uh, they aren't by the body of nature with a unique kind of creativity that we need in this time. We need an ecologically coherent creativity. And so doing deep spiritual practice in nature is the path to accomplishing that. Well, John, we are coming to the end of our show. It's been so great to have you here again. We love having you in leading conversations. So I know people are going to want to know more about the pilgrimage to Tibet, and they're going to want to know more about you and the way of nature. Um, what's the website they can go to? Well, I think it's we still use the, the term Sacred Passage, which is our lead program for the web page. So it's www.sacredpassage.com. Um, and then there's tour books and DVDs and things of that sort. I think it's uh, com. That's great. So it's sacredpassage.com and wayofnature.com. John, thanks so much again for being here, and um, we are blessed to have you in our lives. Thank you, Cheryl. It's great to, to be here again with you. And remember, everyone, to think big because the world could be a better place because of a conversation that matters. This is Cheryl Esposito. Thank you for spending this hour with Cheryl Esposito and Leading Conversations. You can listen live every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you have a question or comment for Cheryl, please email her at leadingconversations at alexaconsulting.com. That's L-E-A-D-I-N-G-C-O-N-V-E-R-S-A-T-I-O-N-S at A-L-E-X-S-A-C-O-N-S-U-L-T-I-N-G.com. See you next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide.